until we got here and he saw the balloons. He goes, oh, they got something going on. And so I said, oh, it must be somebody's birthday. And um, I wanted to ask you down at Bannon. You were trying. You were asking me. He kept asking me if I was prepared for this weekend. I said, huh? <laughs> that would put the pressure on. And uh, I can't lie, but I, I can't lie, but I could make you think something else. <laughs> our, our history goes way back, a long ways. I was sitting here trying to think of it. And obviously before any of, I want to say kids, but they're not kids anymore, any of your children, um, 38 years yeah. at least. And that just starts with Bible school. With, yeah. And so that's, that's, that's a little ways. That's before most of you here today. <laughs> before most of you. I remember uh, when you left Bible school and went to Africa. I remember when you came home holding Rachel. Um, and maybe even, maybe, I can't remember, but somewhere in there. And we were in conversation. Seemed like we were standing there on the main road that goes there between the office and the sanctuary at the Bible school, and you made a comment that there's something wrong with our daughter. And <clears throat> I look back over all these years and where God has brought us, what God has done, and where we're at today. And uh, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Praise God. Amen. He's blessed your family. 100% of them are with you. And he's added some sons <laughs> and daughters, daughter. And so we are blessed. I'm, uh, it's, it's like family. Um, as I've, down through the years, I've mentioned before the influence that you've had on me, some of the things that you've done. We've had intimate conversations down through the years, and um, our, our phone calls, things that you said that you implemented in your personal life, your devotion with your children, I did the same thing. And um, I prayed for your children. I prayed for mine. I've gone through their names and in prayer. And since then, since you've added sons-in-laws and a daughter-in-law, I've called out the names. Now, don't, don't ask me to give you the names of all the grandkids. But uh, I've called each of you out in prayer. Prayed for Hannah when she was gone to, Bible, to college, not Bible school, college. And um, prayed for each one. And um, just, God, I don't have to announce that. That's just... That's just personal. That's between me and the Lord. Right. When there have been bumpy, bumpy times, I wept and prayed right along with you from a long ways away. And the burden, the heaviness. But after all of these years, 28 years, no, since you've been in Montana, 38 years since we've been friends, 28 years in Montana, 
I can say it is the will of God. It's the will of God. And I believe that just as sure as I'm standing here. And only time will tell <clears throat> um, what God's plan is because you asked the question just a moment ago, how is it, God, that you process all of this? We can ask that same thing. In the course of life that we take, the path that we walk, each of us have our own paths that we have walked. And through it all, God has woven something beautiful. And we may not always understand it because we see, you know, just one side of things, but in time. Now we see through a glass darkly, the Bible says, but then face to face. Had it not been for a Mike Metzger and a Debbie Metzger who made the journey and decided that the will of God was to be in Montana, uh, how and how could it have ever been that we would intersect at this place, at this time, for, I know your name, but I forgot, because Ellison, yeah, and, and of course, for you to be here at such a time as this, for Hannah, for Angel, for Kevin, for George, God wove it all together and brought us to this place. And uh, I, believe it's, I believe it's the will of God. And I appreciate even, you know, myself having um, uh, met my wife. <laughs> I look back on the blessing of it all. Amen. God is good and God is good all the time. Each and every one of us, God has brought us to this place. And so I'm honored to be a part of a pastor appreciation. They're planning one for me. It's not a surprise. It's next uh, let's see, a week after next, it's going to be the fifth Sunday. So while I'm away, the mice can play, and they can, pl <laughs> they can make all the preparation. I'm sure they're just loving. They can just talk freely. And if I don't listen in on Mixler, I probably won't hear anything. <laughs> so anyways, uh, that's, that's coming, and, I, and I'm, I'm aware of that. While I'm getting this together, why don't you go ahead and turn with me? We're going to go to the Old Testament and the New. So I'm going to begin in Malachi. And uh, that's the very last book of the, of, of the Old Testament. And then we're also going to look in the Revelation, which is the last book of the New Testament. And uh, I want to I honor you for honoring your pastor. Uh, as, I, as I stood back there and worshiped, you guys are a long ways off the beaten path. But the message, yeah, just a little bit. But the message is the same. It doesn't matter whether you're on the Pacific or the eastern right, coast. Right. Uh, the message is the same. And I'm, and I'm a witness to the fact that this pastor and his wife are exactly what they were back in Bible school, except for maturity and, you know, uh, and growing older and developing different color hair, or a little less hair down through the years. Uh, the message remains the same. Their testimony has been consistent. And now I'm seeing that testimony bearing fruit in you who are here today. God bless you for your faithfulness to your church. God bless you for your faithfulness to the church. Praise the Lord. I want my wife to stand. I know we, we, um, we've got all day to, to show appreciation but maybe, maybe there's something on her mind that she'd like to share uh, as a pastor's wife.
about a pastor's wife and, and a pastor today. Why don't you stand and just share what's on your heart today. Praise God. Lots and lots and lots of memories, and we've, we've got all day, and some of you have already heard it. I told a story the other day at our church, and after church, one of the brothers in the church said, wow, you've been pastoring here nearly 20 years, and that story I have never heard. So I had, I had a new one for him, and uh, I can't even remember now what it was. It just come to me when I was talking, but he's heard all my little stories, and you know how it is. You, you hear all these, and... Um, well, what I remember about Brother and Sister Metzger uh, living in that little tiny hut uh, of a cabin in, in a Bible school, and I was gone on Christmas break. You guys may have heard this story before. I was gone on Christmas break, and uh, while we were gone on Christmas break, I had put my name in a drawing for a free turkey down at the, at the laundromat. You hear this story? You have. And uh, so here I'm gone. Somebody calls me home. Now, there was no cell phones back in the day. So somebody made the long distance call to let me know. No texting, no emails. Made the long distance call to say, hey, Mike, you've, you've won the turkey <laughs> at, the, at the laundromat. Oh, great. How am I supposed to cook a turkey? So I get back, and we had a married couple there in the church, and Sister Metzger cooked that turkey for me, and I was the prized student to be able to go over and share the turkey with just me and Brother Sister Metzger. And uh, then when we all got done, I was going to go back to being uh, a regular guy in the dorm, and we had some leftovers, and they'd carved it all up. I knew nothing about how to do any of that stuff. And uh, when we got all done, he carved it all up, and the tail end of that turkey he cut off and he stuck it right on top and told me to take it over to the guys and let them have <laughs> leftovers of our turkey. Stuck that, you know, on top. <laughs> we laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. Isn't that a spiritual memory? <laughs> Good Bible school memory. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> Malachi chapter 2 is where I want to begin. I want you to see something here. And I've got what I would, I guess, call a message, a sermon, a study, but I'm just going to kind of work our way through it because my, my ultimate message is not going to be necessarily the sermon, but it's going to be what I want to tell us today on this special day. Malachi chapter 2, verse number 7, for the priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. All right, from that, I want us to back off or jump over here to the back of the New Testament, Revelation, very first chapter. Revelation chapter 1. And beginning at about verse 12. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, 
one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice was as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. How can we apply this text to our pastor, to the to a pastor appreciation day? I hope to convey this to you today in in some way. We've we've got in our text this morning. It's a very straightforward account of history as John saw it. He witnessed it. He lived it. He had been probably by now uh, about 60 years after the death, burial, resurrection, and then the ascension of Christ. John, this beloved disciple, the one that had joined Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, the one that would be considered maybe in a terminology today, a bosom buddy, a, a closest of friends, the one who at the Last Supper leaned, of course, around the Eastern style of, 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 of eating at the table. There would be a low table. They would all sit and they would kneel over or lean over on one elbow maybe or an arm, and they would lean into each other around that table and partake. The, the one that sat closest to Jesus, when the Bible says that he leaned on his breast, in other words, he was right beside him. And so when they, when they leaned together over this table, this was that John that was right here and Jesus was at his side. They could commune and talk. And of course, there, was, there were some intimate conversations that were taking place at that time. This is that John. All of the other disciples are now gone, and John remains alone. He's not died, obviously. He has suffered greatly because, as we read here, he had been banished on this island of Patmos. And he wrote that he was on this island. If we were to back up a little bit to verse number 9, uh, let me back up here. Uh, he, he gives us a reason why he is here. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, he tells us why he's on this island. 
And here's why. For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, I'm here because I preached what Jesus preached. I'm here because of my stand for truth. They hated him because of that. Jesus had already told his disciples, know this, that in the world you're going to have tribulation. We're going to feel that. That message that was to his disciples was a message that was also uh, to us. You're going to feel this. You're going to be persecuted. But he said, know this, you're going to be hated for all, for all, by the, all the world for my name's sake. But he said, know this. They hate you because they hate me. Let's be reminded of that this morning, that a lot of us like to be liked. None of us like to be hated or disliked. But if they dislike you because you're a Christian, let's be reminded that they dislike you because of the one who lives inside of you. They dislike you because of the one that you have fallen in love with because of the one that has made the difference in your life. He says in verse number two, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Clearly, we find John on the island of Patmos because he was bold, he was brave, he was strong, courageous. He wouldn't compromise. He was on the island of Patmos because he wasn't ashamed of Jesus Christ. We have this one who is a great example to us. He wasn't, he wasn't ashamed to preach the gospel that he had been commissioned to preach. Now here he is on the Lord's Day. What better day than the Lord's Day? It was no longer Sabbath day or Saturday when they worshiped. But now... God has, in his sovereign will, shifted the worship to the Lord's Day, to the Sunday. The, the day that Jesus resurrected, every time we gather together, we are celebrating the living Savior. And how they kept track of time on an island, I don't know. How they kept the days, how they, how they knew what day, I don't know. I don't know all that, but we know that John wasn't an ignoramus. He knew what day it was. And he knew that on this day, back home in the churches, they would all be gathered on this day, once again celebrating and worshiping the one who had given his life for them. And John, though away from them, yet in the spirit, he joins them in worshiping his Lord and Savior. There on the island of Patmos, while worshiping God, and I almost kind of like to imagine it in my, in my mind's eye, he gets kind of caught up in worship. He gets kind of lost in the spirit. He gets kind of carried away in his mind back to the home church. And he can see brother so-and-so standing there all dressed up and worshiping God and he can see and hear in his mind. He can hear sister so-and-so as she's worshiping and as they sing together. He hears the ones that are a little louder than all the rest. And he's just, just meditating. He's just worshiping. He's just basking in the risen Savior when all of a sudden, behind him, he hears a voice that startles him. And he turns to see 
Jesus like he had never seen him before. This was no accident for Jesus to meet with John on this island. This was, this was unexpected to him, but this was a, an ordained moment with the Savior and John. And he's going to tell John some things I want you to write down. He sees seven golden candlesticks and seven stars. He turns to see the voice of the one standing in the midst of the candlesticks. We don't have to guess what is represented by the candlesticks because he gives it to us in verse number 20. The mystery. Now, the book of Revelation has a lot of mystery. We aren't commanded to understand it all. But we're told that we would be blessed if we were to read it. And so he gives us the key to a part of this vision in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. He says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So we've got a We've got a key to understanding the mystery of this vision that John sees. Jesus is standing in the midst of the candlesticks. We don't have to guess about them. It tells us plainly. The seven candlesticks are the seven historic churches that were scattered across uh, Asia Minor at the time. The seven angels is, has been debated somewhat down through the years. Uh, but the best I can find as I study this, some have said, well, angels are those that attend to God's command, those that are at the beck and call of God. They will respond immediately when God wants something done, an angel will be there. But really, the basic definition of an angel is simply a messenger. An angel that is assigned to each candlestick. And so the candlestick we know as the church, who would the angel be? Would it be some heavenly being that has been appointed to kind of oversee that particular candlestick? We could say, well, in a sense, maybe if Peter had maybe a guardian angel and others had a guardian angel, maybe there are certain spirit beings who are appointed over certain churches and certain areas. Maybe it's the, it's the overseer or a bishop over a number of churches. Surely in, in the church of Ephesus, it's not just a single church. It had gotten so big and maybe they had church plants throughout that large city. They were growing by leaps and bounds. People were being added daily to the church. It wasn't empty. It was being added to. Who is the angel? Well, the, the, the very simplest and most basic definition, messenger. If the Lord has a message for a church, he's not going to put it in cryptic something and send it to some spirit being, he's going to send it to the messenger of that church. 
which is why I read from, to you from the book of Malachi that says that the message of God comes from the lips of the priest. He becomes the messenger of the Lord. And so the messenger of the candlestick would be the star or the angel. That, that star is the angel. That angel is a messenger. You have as a pastor in this church, an angel. Now we've got an angel sitting back there in the back, but we've got the angel that's the messenger to Sun Valley Church seated, seated up here in the front. Now we know who the angel is. Jesus, and what I find very intriguing is that he's holding them in his right hand and he's standing in the midst of these seven candlesticks. Amen. Uh, the message that John was about to receive was not only intended for those specific historic seven churches, but we know because they made it into the inspired word of God, if all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, then the message that he has for each of these churches is going to apply to the church as a whole from that time until now. The Lord had a message for the church of Pergamos and the church of Thyatira and the church of Ephesus and the church of Laodicea and, and each, each of the churches, we get it. But God also has a message for the church at Sun Valley. And we've got to be careful who we hear the message from. Because if God has placed, and it's the will of God, that Mike Metzger be the pastor, the angel, the messenger at Sun Valley Church. If God has a message, he's not going to send some foreigner, some, some stranger to come slipping in through a door or through a window to whisper into the ear of your membership the message for Sun Valley. He's going to give it directly to the angel directly to the messenger, directly to the pastor. Let's talk for a moment about the symbolism of these candlesticks. It's very, it's very clear to understand, actually. Uh, I, as far as I can tell, and I'm no historian, but Thomas Edison hadn't been on the scene yet. So they didn't flip a switch and the lights came on. And so every dwelling place would have candlesticks in their dwelling. Every place of business would have candlesticks in their place of business. Every church would have candlesticks. Now, in the tabernacle, there was a golden candlestick, and God had commissioned certain ones to beat it out of a solid chunk of gold. It was a lamp, a lampstand, a candlestick. Uh, for these, uh, it would probably be made of clay or something, uh, a piece of pottery. It would have been shaped in such a way where it would have a reservoir to hold oil. Oh, let's listen to some of this here. And in this oil, there would probably be something that would be in a, a, a portion of it that a wick would be able to go down into the oil and leach some of that oil up. And then there would be a light. And that light would draw its source from the oil that was coming up through the wick that was held in the reservoir of that candlestick. In every place of business, in every home, and in every church, it wasn't going to be just a wax candle. It's going to be one of these lamps, 
one of these uh, from the most humble to the largest, most magnificent palaces. Nobody had electricity. They were lamps, candlesticks, candlesticks. And God gave instructions exactly how to create the candlestick of the tabernacle. But there was a practical purpose, a practical use of these, of these lamps. And what would, what, what, would, uh, what would happen would be they would light it and it would provide light. The Old Testament tabernacle uh, candlestick would provide light in the holy place. Amen. The Bible tells us that that light was to never go out. Now, because of the ancient world depended upon all of these lamps to provide light in the dark places, the image of the church as light in the darkness is so important for us to understand. Jesus was distinctly indicating that the role of the church is to be light, to be light in a dark place. He told his disciples, I'm the light of the world. But then he turned around and tells them, ye are the light of the world. Paul tells the Ephesian church, ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk in the Lord, walk as children of light. He wrote to the church of Thessalonica, ye are all the children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night and we are not of darkness. And so the oil lamps in the homes, in common people, in common places, in businesses, they would have been just cheap little clay vessels. And I want us to think about something they were often very fragile. They would have noticeable defects. And so it should be instantly noticed that the church is made up of people just like that. People who aren't perfect. You want to find the perfect church? You're going to look far and wide to find the perfect church. You're gonna look for a church that is made up of perfect people? <laughs> I've got news. You show up, it's no longer perfect. But there's more to understand. The important thing to keep in mind is that these humble lamps contained oil. Amen. It's important for us to understand because it serves as a beautiful picture of the church being the vessel of the Holy Spirit in the world today. Amen. Um, uh, even though we as a church, uh, I put a few letters here together to make them all, make everybody think that I'm smart like Zane. We in the church often tend to be fragile and frail and faulty. And he could have come up with a half dozen more F's than that, but we'll let Brother Zane do that. <laughs> but every, what we need to come down to this is every single one of us can have an infinite supply of oil on the inside.
and we come back to church each week and we get in the presence of God. And you don't have to wait to get to church to get this, but you can get in the presence of God at any time because God has designed that it be that way because you and I are the vessel of the Holy Ghost who has moved into us and we can get down on our knees in any place at any time. And whenever we're in the spirit, there comes this fresh supply of oil that gives us the ability to shine in a dark place whether it's on the job, whether it's in the house, whether it's at the store, whether it's out hunting, wherever it is, we can have the oil of the Holy Ghost inside of us that helps us to shine. Amen. Always remember that it's the wick that is saturated with oil that burns effectively in each and every lamp. And God's plan is for each and every believer to be so saturated with the oil of the Holy Ghost and to be set on fire as a light for God. Never let the devil drain the oil and put the fire out in your life. That's up to each and every one of us to do that. Amen. Think of the ministry of the church. I put down a little extra thought here. As long as true church members have the oil inside of us, there's care for the lost and needy. Gonna go, I, I didn't take the time to go through all the alphabet, but I'm going to use few of them here for you just to think about. This is a special day. Whenever the oil is in you, Brother Peter, there's going to be some compassion in a believer. By the way, we're going to get to the angel here in a little bit because we draw so much from this. God speaks through him and allows us to receive into us. And I see you have become multiplied. You have been duplicated in the lives of these. You came out just pretty much by yourself with your children, fairly small. But now you've duplicated yourself. There's care. There's a contrast between light and darkness if the oil is inside of us as believers. There is deliverance from spiritual bondage because of the oil that's in the believer. There's a godly example to young people, to children, grandchildren, to new converts, there's a godly example because of the faithfulness of Christians, believers, who spend time in the presence of God and, and are filled again with the oil of the Holy Ghost. There is freedom, amen, from bondage. There is godliness that's demonstrated. There is hope to be offered to the hopeless, to the homeless. There is intercession for others. There's love that's demonstrated throughout the world. There is ministry to the sick, ministry to the drug addict, ministry to the brokenhearted, preaching to the lost, rescue. I know there's been a lot of talk about rescue from human trafficking. In this church, there's rescue because of the oil that's been deposited in us as Christians. Sending of missionaries, the voice for the unborn, vote for conservatism because we've got oil on the inside. Oil on the inside. You ever thought about this before? We may be few in number and we may feel like we're so far outnumbered because we're a conservative church. You ever notice that the liberal church also votes liberal? 
Beware of the liberal. Any, anytime somebody's liberal in their worship, liberal in their lifestyle, they're going to be liberal in their vote. <clears throat> okay, where am I at? Okay, let me get back to this. Notice that John saw, we talked about the, the, the imperfection of the candlesticks, but notice that John saw in these candlesticks that they were golden. We went to uh, Bannock, of course, a couple days ago. And uh, those who populated these cities, towns, villages, many years ago were there not just to dig clay out of the earth. They're there to dig for gold. Some of the others, now abandoned, ghost towns, they call them. Um, when, when John is describing the golden candlesticks, He's not just talking about their color. He's talking about the precious metal gold. Uh, it was often used, of course, as we know, uh, to describe gold coins or golden jewelry or other things that, are, that were pure gold. But there were basically two types of gold. And the lady mentioned some of that to us just the other day. Uh, and we've, we've, she, she talked about little flecks of gold that you can get. And some people stake their claims and, oh, you better not walk up there at night rumbling around thinking you're going to find something on their little plot of ground because it's precious. But then there's, there's a couple different types of gold, actually, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Just want to mention it and move on. There's gold that's been mixed with other stuff. They call it an alloy. But then there's that pure gold. Obviously, the pure gold is the gold that's most desirable. It was the most uh, quality. It was the highest quality metal. The golden uh, candlesticks in this passage uh, that John is describing were of the highest quality. Amen. Uh, but what I want us to see, that what, I, what I'm seeing in this, when he begins to talk about these seven golden candlesticks, He's speaking of what that gold, that pure gold would be. It would be an incorruptible metal. Amen. Uh, that incorruptible metal became a symbol of enduring value. And throughout history, there's been nothing more precious than gold. It's been true in both the Old and the New Testament times. And so God's use of this word golden to describe the church sends a very powerful message. It lets us know just what he thinks about the church. And consequently, if it lets us know what he thinks about the church, then it lets us also know what he thinks about you and me because we make up the church. He doesn't see us as the flawed or the failed or the, or the fragile he sees us as pure gold. The devil hates the church. The devil always wants to make the church feel unworthy. The devil always wants to get uh, us to think evil of the church and to belittle the church, to talk bad about the church, to down the pastor of the church. Amen. He, he wants us to join in conversation against the church. Amen. Can I ask a question of the men that are with us this morning? Would you allow that of your wives for somebody to go around talking about your wife that way? Absolutely not. And so also Jesus doesn't allow that of the church. 
He sees us as pure gold. The church is pure gold in God's eyes. And like a miner who might go deep into a dark cave to extract the gold that's even buried in a rock, so also Jesus stepped out of heaven's grand glory into a dark place and mined from that dark place a people that he would call his own, and he saved sinners like you and me. Now let's think for a moment about the serious flaws of these seven churches. You see, we see it on the surface, and we see through the eyes of man what everybody else sees. Ephesus had left her first love. She had fallen. Pergamos and Thyatira were known for their false doctrine. Sardis had grown weak and was ready to die. Laodicea was no longer on fire for God. The Bible teaches that they had become lukewarm. She received a strong rebuke from the Lord. Nearly every single one of the churches were told to repent. The bottom line that you and I can gain from this is that the, they, were par, they were far from perfect. But as I look at this and I see John turning around and see, he sees Jesus. Where is Jesus standing? He's standing in the midst of these golden candlesticks. Can I say to you, and I want to encourage you in this, I'm glad to stand with the church. Because when we're standing with the church, the true church we're standing with Christ. Judas made a huge mistake. It was brought out just the other day on our, one of our Bible studies. He made, a, I, think, I think it was brought out there, just a huge mistake. J Jesus is in the garden with his disciples, but Judas has gone to do his own thing. And then when they come back to get Jesus, it's interesting to see that Jesus is standing here and his other 11 disciples and Judas is standing there. He's standing on the other side. He's standing with the enemy. Amen. I would so much rather be standing with Christ than standing with the world. Listen, when you're a part of the church, when you're a part of the true church, you have nothing to be ashamed of because we're pure gold. Others may, not me. I'm going to stay right here with the church. And so I've come this morning. I want to be an encouragement to you and remind you, amen, there's nothing more precious to Jesus than the church, nothing more precious in all the world than the body of Christ, amen, and that would include Sun Valley Church, amen. The devil may be trying to get you to see all of the problems and all of the troubles, but I've come to remind us this morning that Jesus sees us in a different light. You see, the church has always had some problems, let me give you just a couple notable ones. Number one, that wicked woman that was in the church, Mary Magdalene, out of whom came seven, uh, seven devils, that low-down skunk of a thief. Yeah, that's Zacchaeus. He used to be one of those, but now he's born again. In fact, he made restitution and gave back to the poor everything that he stole. Yeah, I see in that church a liar. That's right. He's the leader now. His name's Peter. He's not the same guy who denied Jesus when he denied him. What about that murderer that's sitting on the pew? Oh, yeah, that, he used to be known by Saul, but now we call him Paul. And more appropriately, we call him Apostle Paul. 
Amen. None of us this morning would deny the fact that God has accepted each and every one of these. And I could go on and on and talk about a whole lot more than that, but God has accepted each one of these failed and, fr and frail and, and, and faulty people into the church. Amen. But none of us would deny that. But at the same time, the devil would like to convince us that we don't belong. Robert Munger said the church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. <laughs> where were you before you got saved? Where was our pastor before he got saved? Where was this pastor before he got saved? I'll speak for myself. Raised in church all my life, but a rebel. Raised in church all my life, but deviant and deceptive. A liar and a thief. Amen. In fact, one time I even wound up in jail because I stole something that I shouldn't have taken. And it's been a mark and a shame upon me. But now when the Lord sees me, I'm no longer that man. Now God has called me to be the pastor of the church. Now God's called your pastor to be the pastor of the church. But none of us are perfect. Amen. Some in the church were immoral. Some in the church were all wrapped up in rock and roll music. Some in the church were bound by drugs and alcohol. Some in the church have been foul-mouthed, rotten sinners. But here we are this morning. By the way, I see everybody found your suit to wear instead of the jeans this year. I'm proud of you for dressing up for church on a Sunday. I mean, I, I, I wear suits when I come to church. I don't know about everybody else. But what were we before we came to know Jesus Christ as Savior? Oh, that doesn't matter anymore because it matter, what matters now is what am I? Amen. We were out there, but now we've sung the songs of Zion together and we've exalted and lifted up the name of Jesus together. Now we carry our Bibles. Amen. Now we're surrounded by the family of God. Now we're seated and clothed and in our right minds. I'm so glad to be a part of the family of God. Amen, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Amen, I once was blind, but now I see. And God has brought us into the family of God. God the Father looks down and sees a body of believers who have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. God the Son looks at the church and he sees nothing but pure gold. Amen. And in your pastor, he sees an angel, the messenger of God that he has commissioned to some little remote place in Montana. I say, well done. Well done. When we first met, none of these kids were here, but they're all here tonight. Seated, clothed, in your right mind? I hope so. Some might think we're a little loco, but we're not loco. I think Brother Angel back there speaks un poquito espanol. <laughs> where was Angel just two years ago? Look where he is today. 
Kevin, I don't know how long you've been saved. Look where you are this morning. George, look, at, look where you're at this morning. Amen. Where were you last 10 years ago? Where were, where were we before a pastor preached the gospel and we responded by the convicting power of the Holy Ghost or we said in the service, where would we be had this church not been erected where it is today? Where would we be had there not been an angel that God spoke to, gave a message, and it's a message he's preached for decades. Amen. I come to preach to you this morning that I stand with the church and I stand with the pastor. Praise God. And I want to challenge you to do the same. Let's stand with the church and let's stand with our pastor. Pray for our pastor. Pray for the church. We're children of the same family. We are stones in the same building. We're citizens of the same kingdom. But we're something more than that. We are the body of Christ. I'm glad to be a part of the family of God. No, we're not perfect, but this is our home. We may not be perfect, but this is family. This is our life. We've discovered not only what it means to be forgiven, but we've also discovered what it means to forgive. I appreciated that video yesterday, that film. Forgive. The Bible says we are members one of another. Let's not criticize the pastor. Let's not criticize the church. Let's stand for the church. In spite of all of its flaws, in spite of all of its faults, I believe in the church of this hour. I'm glad to be a part of the church. I want to share with you just a couple things that I kind of put together and this thing don't want to stay up there very well. Um, Brother Peter was going through, we'll, we'll do things a little differently. It's just us. It's, I'm, I'm just about done, by the way. <laughs> I, I did a search and found that there are way more than these that are negative traits or things that come along with being a pastor. And I know because I am one. <laughs> I've been in pastoral ministry for over 30 years. There's an emotional burden. Brother Peter brought it out this morning in his acronym. Pastors often bear the emotional weight of their congregation's struggles. And that emotional weight, if not counterbalanced by a walk with God, can lead to burnout. It can lead to emotional exhaustion. I've, I've talked to your pastor at times when he's I can tell by talking to him, he's just drained. Gone through it, burdened. I've been there. I've shared my troubles with him as well. The emotional burden, the negative. Another negative, time demands. Oh, the all-consuming hours that can be spent and that are placed upon us as pastors. And the bigger the church, the more the demand. People call at all hours of the night. One, one night years ago, I had already gone to bed. We were still 
pastoring in Texas. And I, I got a call after we were already in bed and said, Pastor, I just slapped my nephew across the face. I need you to come and help me. <laughs> got into it with his nephew. And he just hauled off and slapped him. I could have said, well, tell him you're sorry and go to bed. But I didn't. I got up and went over there. I didn't have to get out of the bed. But what do we do as pastors? We get up and we go and we spend that time. A lot of times, uh, another negative of being a pastor is we, because we're that public figure, we're that out front person. That's what the star is, that angel that's been placed over. He's that representative. I mean, if Jesus is going to send a letter to churches, it makes sense that he's going to send it to the one who's the spokesperson for that past, for that church. And in so doing, we become the target of criticism and pressure, another negative of being a pastor. It's all the criticism and pressure. Pastors face such scrutiny and criticism, sometimes from the congregation, but oftentimes from outside. They're looking for something. There are financial challenges, another negative. Number five, another negative is a role conflict. Pastoring our families. All my family's in my church, most all of them. And we've got to balance that role. And I appreciate you acknowledging not only is he dad and papa or grandpa or whatever, but he's also pastor. This is your pastor's wife. That, that, that balance of dad, counselor, spiritual leader, administrator, visionary, all those things can create stress. But then not to leave us in the negatives, I want to share just a few positives. There's something about being a pastor that brings spiritual fulfillment. We see a grandchild come and get saved or filled with the Holy Ghost. We see, uh, we come in this morning and a, a surprise to him, he didn't hear a peep from me. It's going to pull it off until the balloons. <laughs> the balloons blew it. <laughs> and the fact that he's a know-it-all. <laughs> he figures it out. He does, he's not stupid. But there's spiritual fulfillment. It, it kind of brings a deep sense of fulfillment and, and encouragement when you've stood and you've made comments He's not just your pastor, but you've acknowledged, you've affirmed his leadership role in your lives. And I we say this a lot of times about the pastor, but I don't ever want to overlook the, the, the role that the pastor's wife plays in his life. We don't ever want to forget that, and I encourage you to do that. Another positive, not only the spiritual fulfillment, but the impact on others' lives just because of that calling God has chosen to place you there. Um, Personal growth, growth, ministry forces us to our knees, makes us to have a relationship with God, gets us into the word of God. It helps us so that we can help others. And of course, I'm sure there's a lot more than that. I want to commend you. And I, this wasn't anything profound, but I hope that I've said something today. My message that I wanted to convey is I'm glad to stand with the church and I'm glad to stand with your pastor. Amen. Amen.
Praise God. I don't know what all you've got planned today, but I do want to pray for your pastor. Can we stand together this morning?